You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to this remotely produced edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. The federal government is just about to roll out its COVID-19 contact tracing app. Apparently, the deal is the more people who use the app, the more likely the virus can be tracked and contained, and the more likely the lockdown can be lifted sooner rather than later. Tim Singleton-Norton is the founder and currently a board member of Digital Rights Watch here in Australia, and he's been keeping a close eye on these developments. I spoke to him by phone a few days ago. Digital Rights Watch has been monitoring and commenting on the government's attempts to introduce the use of digital technologies to track and prevent the spread of the coronavirus. And some of the models that have been put forward to do this have been deployed in places like Singapore, South Korea, Israel, and China. Could you give us some examples of the technologies that are being deployed in those places? And what have these countries been doing with these technologies in terms of the COVID-19, tracking COVID-19? Yeah, it's an interesting one at the moment. I mean, we've seen attempts by governments to track and surveil its populace for decades. It's It seems like a very easy thing. It's a very heavy-handed thing to try and control your populace by watching their every move. Um, and most people would bring up the George Orwell examples um, of the the ultimate sort of uh, end goal for most authoritarian dictatorships. Um, what we see in times of emergencies like you know, right now with the coronavirus is that there is a very valid reason to want to track and trace. In fact, that's been explained to us quite well. It's not that a government wants to track us because they don't trust what we're doing. It's because by the time we figure out that we're infected, we need to know all those points of contact. So this one's a very unique example. We actually do need that level of data. But the solution that the government's putting forward, which is trust us, track your every move, and we'll only look at it if you're sick. They don't have a very good track record in this regard. Mm. Um, If you look back at some of the things that the government has done, and some of your listeners will remember the Australia card debacle about, you know, when it was first put forward as a single ID for all of your interactions in government, uh, and we'll link up everything and trust us the data will be secure. Majority of Australians pushed back very heavily and said, absolutely not. You know, we don't want that level of traceability. Um, so that's what's happening now is we're getting a bit of pushback. Now, as I said, the problem is that it's in the midst of, well, what is the solution? Mm-hmm. So, as you said, elsewhere around the world, we've seen very effective track and trace measures in places like Singapore, Korea, Japan, those sort of places. Um, what they've been doing there is a mix of different technologies, different social orders, and different arrangements or agreements between authorities and individuals. And it's that last one that we need the Australian government to get right. Mm-hmm. Because there always has to be a balance. There always has to be a discussion, a debate, and a trade-off. So, as I said, in this example, 
I accept, and most people would accept, that there has to be a trade-off of some privacy if there is a valid reason to do so. Uh, if I am proven to be sick, then you have a right to go back through my history to make sure that I did not get other people sick. What you don't have a right to do is track everything that I do in mm. case I get mm. sick. Mm. And that's the fundamental thing that we're sort of grappling with here. Most governments, ours included, will be looking for the quickest, fastest, easiest technological fix. And unfortunately, sometimes they come with huge trade-offs that will be very hard to roll back. What did they do, for example, in Singapore or, in, or South Korea or Israel, China? What are the sort of technologies that they were using? So most of them work on the basis of uh, pinging uh, interconnectivity. So most what, what they will do is use something that is location-based, such as Bluetooth, uh, and it will track an engagement with another person's phone. It uses the phone as a node network to link people together. So if you or I sit in the same cafe, Bluetooth will be able to have a range of about five to 10 meters. If we are within one meter, we're clearly within an infection zone. It will ping that you and I went within an infection, a possible infection zone. It will log that and it will move on. And then I go on my way, you go on your way. 10 days later, I come up with coronavirus, it will go back through that log and it will find you and it will say, there's a possibility that you infected him as well. Now, it is quite a interesting method of doing it. The problem is, and we've already heard the Prime Minister saying, if the app is voluntary and I have the app, but you don't, it's going to not record you. It has no way of knowing that you're there. And so... The only way for these sort of apps to work is if you have a huge uptake. You need about 40 to 60% take up of the population. Now, 40% of the population doesn't even have a mo you know, a, the same mobile phone. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a huge technological barrier that we've got here. Um, in South Korea, the government texts people to let them know if they're in the vicinity of a diagnosed individual, so it went the other way. Um, if someone was diagnosed and noted and recorded, then it was almost like a beacon. It sent out messages to people in those vicinities to say oh. you are within or you may have been within the vicinity of a diagnosed person. Please come and test. This would assume that most or almost everybody would have a mobile device of some kind or a device of some kind that would uh, register these, these signals. Is that right? Right, exactly. And I mean, when you're talking about a very advanced uh, democracy like South Korea, a very high technological uptake, um, fairly middle class, most people can be guaranteed, even if you are at the lower end of the socioeconomic you know, spectrum, you'll have a mobile phone. Mm. Now, the other thing in there is cultural. There is a whole range of cultural differences between South Korea and Australia, if you take two examples, and even just a, a broad-brushed, very generic Asian culture will be accepting of having engagements with a government via technology. It's something that's accepted in China and South Korea and Japan, that that is a, a valid engagement back and forth. We don't have that culture here. Mm. You know, we don't have an acceptance that we would have government apps, that we would engage with our government with a mutual aim. There's either a lot of distrust, uh, a lack of understanding, a lack of technology. Uh, there's a whole range of things that make this not a very viable option. But I think the, the fundamental one that gets in the problem and gets in the way is this lack of trust with the government. Very interesting. I just want to roll back to the beginning of this month. It was revealed that the government was trialing some kind of data collection facility 
taking information from mobile phone users in order to track the coronavirus. And I wanted to, to just ask you what was involved with this, because um, Digital Rights Watch was very critical of this initiative. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that we actually don't know the full extent of what was being trialled. Um, we can pick it up from snippets. We can uh, postulate as to what they were actually doing. Uh, we can also look at the prior legislation that we know has been passed in Australia that gives the, the government the existing powers to track and trace through mobile technologies. So, as I said, we already have metadata retention, uh, mandatory metadata retention of every engagement that you have on the internet or on a mobile device. Um, we now have encryption breaking powers that if a law enforcement officer thinks that you are doing something wrong, they can go to Facebook or Apple and say, break that computer so that I can look into it. So take those two existing laws or those two existing powers. And then if you layer on the idea that they would go to Telstra, Vodafone, etc., and just say, we need the data of where everyone is when they're pinging up a cell tower and that way we'll be able to track and trace them. That's a huge overreach. Mm-hmm. I think that was the main problem was that on the one hand, if you had, um, so there was a case in the US where a company got hold of cell phone tower data, which was freely available, uh, managed to ping a whole bunch of mobile phones with a unique ID on a Florida beach uh, during spring break. And then just as an example, tracked those same IDs as they were shut down Florida police came in and shut down spring break. All of those people got back on planes and went back to their home states all across America. Now, that one example was used to kind of hit home the message that every single one of those people was infected and then suddenly they went home to Ohio, to to you know, Oregon, to wherever they came from. And that was a huge spread. Mm. What it did for us as privacy advocates was say, hang on a second, how did you... How did you do that? How did you suddenly invade the privacy of 10,000 people, uh, track them across a country um, when they have a private contract with a telecommunications company, but a government, in this case the US government, who has the ability to step in and go, we need that data, give us that data, don't tell anyone we asked for it. Mm. And we have the same powers here in Australia. So that was why we're very concerned about that next step. And I think all of this stuff is just a steady creep. It's layers upon layers mm-hmm. of different powers that build towards an authoritarian dystopia where there is very little trust from and with government about how we are living our everyday lives and using technology to do so. Yeah, and that's really my next question was uh, let's fast forward a couple of weeks to the middle of, middle of the month and the government announced another digital strategy following the one that you were just talking about, the COVID contact tracing app you have explained it a little bit what how does it work what how is it supposed to work and why is it being touted as the coronavirus the key to the coronavirus recovery here in australia well i mean i'm no health expert but i'm picking up everything that everyone else is but we need a couple of different layers to be able to fight this you know we need to slow the spread we've done that we need to beef up our health industry we've done that now we need to make sure that we squash any instance of the virus reappearing. And the best way to do that is this track and trace method, is that as soon as you get a a whiff of a potential outbreak in one area, you need to track down every single interaction, every single person who's had an interaction and isolate them, treat them, quarantine them, and, you know, just kill the virus by starving it of, of humans. To do that, 
we do need an incredibly rigorous regime to be able to just find people when those instances occur. Now, if you look back to some of the other places around the world and how they've done that, as I said, there's a cultural understanding of the of the acceptance of an invasion of privacy. There is, you know, uh, predominantly Asian cultures are very tight. They live in tight quarters. There is an acceptance that you will give up some certain level of privacy because there is a lot of you in a small space. Um, there are technologies that the government produces that are helpful to your life and you use them and the trade-off is that the government gets a little bit of data back. Um, we need those bargains. You know, we need to actually have that debate with government and we need it to be about what the government needs, what the populace needs and what the individual is willing to do. Digital Rights Watch has raised some serious concerns about this particular uh, tracing app and, and some of the things that you're talking about. The bargain is uh, stuff to do with transparency and uh, things to do with uh, social licenses. Is that the way you would put it? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's about having a trust between government and the people. Um, and that comes with, as you said, transparency and oversight. Um, we need to know what, how this thing works, who gets the data, where is it stored, how long is it stored for. Um, after the whole crisis is done, if we ever get to that point, will it all be deleted? Mm -hmm. uh, does it link up with other data sources? Um, we've already seen governments uh, with the best of intentions attempt to link data sources to make systems more efficient or more effective. But when they do that, they have to reevaluate the bargain that they've entered into with the person, with the, the citizen involved. Um, so to do that, we need an open debate about what we're willing to give up. The oversight mechanisms, you know, we have a parliamentary oversight mechanism, we have committees, we have um, statutory bodies that review things, um, but the the rapid pace of how we're going through this crisis means that maybe not all of them are being enacted. What I read uh, from your from the website was that apparently the Attorney General General was going to be the one who was going to be auditing this, and you've argued that it really needs to be much more independent than that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it sounds great in theory if you say uh, the Attorney General with the expertise of the AG's department will be reviewing it. That's an elected official. That's a member of Cabinet. That's eight or ten people who have decided to do something and then appointed one of them as the judge of whether it's okay. Now, that's not okay in any level of oversight. It needs to be independent. It needs to be separate to the people implementing it so that it can actually be reviewed. Now, to their credit, and I will give them credit on some things, partly because of the criticism that we've laid very quickly onto this plan, there have been tweaks and changes, there have been clarifications. Uh, the, the Privacy uh, Information Commissioner, uh, Angela Falk, has been deeply involved in it and has pushed very heavily for privacy regulations. Uh, Ed Santow, the Human Rights Commissioner, has been doing the same thing. And we've seen a slight rollback of things like um, the fact that the app was first mooted as potentially mandatory, and they've rolled that back and said that will not be the case. It will be voluntary, but in order for it to work, we would need a 50% take-up of the population. So what we'll see is not an immediate rollout of mandatory government apps. What we'll see is a very, very strong PR campaign for this is the only method, this is how we save you. If you don't do it, you're not a good citizen. Now, I want to open the lens a little bit wider. You've hinted at this uh, earlier in our discussion, but I want to focus on a, a, a bigger picture uh, focus, if you like. Digital Watch has pointed out there's 
There's been a number of reasons why digital deployments, such as the ones we're talking about, we've been discussing, are re- a really serious risk to human rights and the workings of democracy. If I understand it correctly, your organization has been suggesting there's a historical trajectory here going way back a couple of decades back to the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks and its aftermath and the COVID-19 tracking device that they want to roll out is actually part of a larger, more insidious trend, which might be called, well, you've alluded to it, something like the surveillance state. And you've done a, a timeline to track digital rights legislation in Australia, back starting back from 2001, where the attacks took place in New York City. I wonder if you could talk us through what you found and uh, help us to position the current COVID contact tracing app in this context? Yeah, sure. We talk a lot about um, that that sort of layered approach that the government has been putting in place um, and how one law might not look that bad, but when layered and and combined with another, it becomes a lot more insidious. And we realised that we hadn't actually done the full picture. So a few of us went back to 9-11, which is the, the point in history when we can actually see legislation, legislative change within liberal democracies um, into a much harsher sense. Um, And obviously, you know, that was a horrific terror attack. It shocked America and it shocked most of the Western world. Um, What it did was start the ball rolling on terrorism and terrorists being the ultimate thing that we needed to win against. And therefore, we needed these sort of hugely draconian measures for a government to be able to fight properly. Um, And the reason for that is that it is very hard to find a terrorist. It is very easy to fight another nation state. You can identify them. They live somewhere else. Um, They have their own governance. They even have uh, diplomacy channels that you can go back and forth with. But with a terrorist, you nine times out of 10 don't know that they're there until they've attacked. And so the overreach that happens is that you must give up some of the rights of all in in order to catch the few. And what, what we saw was our own government introducing terrorism offences, uh, then very rapidly an expansion of ASIO's powers as our, um, our security agency, um, which allowed them to track and trace uh, individuals they thought was terrorists, interrogate non-suspects for up to 24 hours, um, detain them for up to seven days without telling anyone, uh, including children. So it was a real kind of push and an overreach towards those sort of things. Um, And within our own borders, the Australian Federal Police granted an extension of powers. Um, One of the most horrible ones in there was also uh, an an addition to the Sedition Act, um, which is a very draconian act that actually is more about when you attack the state. Um, And it it added a layer of the behaviour of urging which was to try and stop um, terrorist recruitment videos, basically. It was to stop people saying, you should hate your own nation state uh, and therefore you should come and join ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whichever was the flavour of the Mm. month. Um, Now, that was the direct response. That was within about three or four years of 9-11. And that was very much framed around terrorists, just terrorists, Mm. predominantly Mm. Middle Eastern terrorists. What we then saw with successive governments was a layering on of, uh, well, the AFP says that if they're going to track terrorists, it would be nice if they could do it via mobile phones. Mm. So let's put that in place. Um, If we are going to um, give more powers to ASIO, they need to be able to listen to every conversation that's happening. So let's just let them do that. 
including to Australians. Uh, and that's where it sort of chips away and it builds up over time. Um, now, in the midst of those, we also had two major uh, national security leaks um, in Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. And that was obviously embarrassing for America. It was also embarrassing for the Australian government. It revealed quite a lot about our joint operations with America. And as a result, what we got in Australia was a layering on of, well, that's illegal. We shouldn't be revealing state, state secrets. So here are some punishments on top of there. Then a layering of any journalist that was connected to that because if you've got information on the government and you talk to a journalist, the journalist needs to be punished as well. Uh, metadata retention, biometrics collection at customs uh, ports, uh, what's called a facial biometric capability, which is the link up of photo databases, including driver licenses. So as we built this list, we could see that each of these individual things is quite innocuous. You know, it's just mm. a national database of all the driver's license photos. Okay, but then ASIO is allowed to track and trace your phone and check that you are the person on your driver's license. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And, and what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. And it's that you know, the, the underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is, a, is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. You know, we want checks and balances. And if I use the example, a cop can't bust my front door now, down right now without due cause. Now, that due cause needs to be checked off by a judge. So there needs to be suspicion. That suspicion needs to be checked by oversight, in this case, the judicial system. And then I have a right of appeal. I can actually go to that judge afterwards and say, dude, you didn't find anything. Mm. There was no cause. Now, those are the systems that we've agreed to in our legal system. What we've seen in this rollout of national security legislation is that a lot of those are just being pushed aside because it is quicker and easier to have a dragnet to pick up all this stuff mm. than it is to try and individually just chip away. And we, we've heard this from law enforcement where they're like, oh, it's so annoying. I have to actually you know, find a reason and then I have to go to a judge and by the time I do, mm -hmm. the terrorist or the suspected terrorist has moved on to an encrypted platform and that platform is based in America. And, and all along, we've always said that we totally support that law enforcement needs to do its job. But what it doesn't need to do is take away fundamental rights from the, from the masses in order to do it. I think that's it goes back to that bargain that we're talking about. Yes. Now, if you then take this this COVID app on top of it, it is just one more layer. It is another layer of a service that government offers. Um, and the most recent examples that we've had is the My Health Record. You know, on the face of it, a national database of medical records that enables your doctor and your health provider and your pharmacist to deliver a better level of care is great. And if you link it in with our Medicare system, we have a universal healthcare system that needs to have systems that tra track things like medication use or um, whether or not you get your money back in time, like a whole range of different things. If you then said, we're going to link it all up, then that would be great. But what they did at the time was say, we're going to link it all up. Uh, here's a list of random people that can access your private personal health data. 
Also, the health minister can see it whenever he wants. Also, it's mandatory. Now, that, those simple <laughs> three little things on the end made everyone go, oh, hang on. <laughs> mm. Whereas if they'd done it smart and actually said, you know, this is a system that will help you, you can opt into it, uh, and this is what we will give you in return, and here's a transparent, uh, very clear list of everything that the government is collecting, and here's who's looking and watching us to make sure we don't do the wrong thing. And I think most people in that scenario would have gone, okay. Mm. Now, that's the, the track record that we're talking about. If they can't even get a health record system, which you know has personal information but is by and large not that, not that secretive, then why would we trust them to know where we are within metres of each other for the next unforeseeable future? That was Tim Singleton-Norton from Digital Rights Watch, and he was talking about the Morrison government's planned rollout of the COVID-19 contact tracing app and the implications for personal privacy and state-based surveillance. That's all from Communication Mixdown this week. We're back again next Monday. Let's go out with Rockwell and his track, Somebody's Watching Me.